0: Uh, it. Who, who, who's the big stiff out of you guys? got the big
1: stiff?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Oh, we wow. haven't really,
1: we haven't really spoke about. Yeah, anyway, uh, here's Wonderwall. Yeah,
2: and Terrence.
1: Yeah, right, mate, you're right.
2: I've had a bloody guff. Big
1: stiff podcast. You guys obviously have done your homework. This is really, really important. I've enjoyed this totally. And hopefully you'll go on a
0: bigger and bigger and better because you're a pair of great guys who-
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the official Big Stiff Podcast. I'm joined here by Roscoe. How you going, mate? Going well?
1: Scotty Baldwin.
2: Very good, mate. How are you? Well, today is a massive episode. We've got Johnny Eels, the one and only. How you going, Johnny? You going well, mate? Thanks for joining us.
0: I'm really well, thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure, pleasure to come and have a chat.
1: So, Johnny, I'm going to give us uh, a little bit of a background, and um, we're going to pump your tyres up, mate. How about that? Former Australian captain John Eels is one of a select group of players to have won two Rugby World Cups, one in 1991, aged just 21, and as captain in '99. As a towering second row, Eels was not only an outstanding lineout expert and a great ball player. He was also a formidable kicker. He remains to this day one of the highest point scoring forwards in the history of the game. Wow. One of his most memorable conversions was a late match winner from the touchline to win the Bledisloe Cup in 2000. John made over 100 appearances for the Queensland Reds and 86 caps for the Wallabies over the next decade, many of which were as captain. At the time of his retirement, he was one of the most capped Second row forwards in the history of the game. Welcome back to the to podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. So, I've, as it's like a little, uh, little ongoing theme that we ask about five little short sharp uh, questions just to break the ice. Are you, you're happy to go with that?
0: Fire away. So, I'm sure bar or you five short sharp yeah. answers. So <laughs> yeah. There we go. Bar,
1: bar or dance floor, John? <laughs> Sorry. Bar or
0: dance floor? Oh, bar or dance floor? Um, depends what time of the night. Like I mean, like pro- probably the bar. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah fair call, cool, fair call. Cool. Are you probably lingering onto the the dance floor later on? Are you?
0: <laughs> later on, Like, we, we have a few late family sort of things. Like it's it's pretty tame stuff. Some pretty average dancing, but um... yeah,
1: beautiful, beautiful. Uh, who is your hero, mate?
0: Yeah, look, I followed. I mean, rugby and cricket were my two sports, and uh, so I loved Greg Chappell when I was growing up. Oh, Greg yeah. Chappell and Dennis Lilly were, you know, were were the number ones. I, I in cricket, and there were three guys. There was Paul McLean, Tony Shaw, and Mark Lone in rugby. Um, yep. But I don't think there was anyone, any person who's been more an Australian man than than Dennis Lilly. Like he Beautiful. was, uh, yeah, he was a legend, and loved watching him. He had character. He had just just that bit of definite. Uh, how would you how would you sum it up? Like he he was such a great competitor, and he yeah. just seemed like a really good bloke,
1: for yeah. sure. Would you um? Was that as a kid were you wanting to be a cricket player?
0: I loved it, but uh, what grabbed me, I just played a bit of cricket after school and stuff like that, but what grabbed me about rugby was just the the culture of the game in the clubhouse, if you like. It, you know, when yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I loved being a part of Brothers Rugby Club and that really was what turned the lights on for me. Awesome.
1: Uh, something that people don't know about you, mate?
0: Ooh. Um, well, they're probably things that I don't want them to know about me. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't know. Look, I was. Um, yeah, I suppose it's been a lot written and a lot said in do- different ways, but but I think the uh, yeah, my, my, I had a very heavy Italian influence growing up yeah. because yeah. my grandmother Nonna, as she was known, and my grandfather yeah. lived with us all all my life when I was young, and yeah. um, they were really a very big influence on our family.
1: Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Favorite
0: movie of all time? Oh, I think there's different genres of movie, aren't there? Like, I, I love it's very it. subjective I mean, to your mood, right? Shawshank Redemption, Shawshank, oh, Shawshank Redemption, yes. Another, yes. Movie, another one. But, but look, finished. I love, I also love the genre of like Blades of Glory, Blades of <laughs> Glory, fantastic,
1: you know,
0: fantastic. That's, fantastic. A, that's, a, that's a great movie, and and even, um. Uh, I've just I've just forgotten the name of it. Uh, Juno. I, I reckon Juno yeah, is okay. an outstanding yeah. movie because yeah, it yeah, combines it really good characters, interesting story, and great music.
1: Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's quirky, but yeah, it's it's uh it's a groundbreaking movie that one. Uh and lastly, favorite karaoke song.
0: I need something that I can just fit in a really flat range there. and <laughs> sort of uh, like a
1: Johnny Cash, is it?
0: Johnny Cash is easy to sing along to. Like probably, like maybe a Thunder Road from Bruce Springsteen. You can almost get away from it. There's a couple of times when it gets away from you, but but I can do that okay. But any Johnny Cash, you can sort of pretty much just hit that zone and just stay there.
1: Beautiful. I think either way, I think you'd be better than uh, Meatloaf at the AFL Grand Final, mate. (laughs) 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 Um, So. You made your debut against uh, Wales uh, at Brisbane's Ballymore Oval in 1991. How did you find out you were in the team um, and did you receive a call?
0: Yeah, in those days they used to... Queensland would play a game against one of the visiting countries uh, on the the Saturday generally or the Sunday, probably Sunday in Queensland and and they'd be doing the same in Sydney. New South Wales would play the other team and, and that particular night... We had just played. Um, we had just played England that afternoon in Brisbane. New yep. South Wales had just played Wales. The test was against Wales the following week. That Sunday night at Ballymore, we uh, at the aftermatch function, Bob Templeton, who's since passed away, great Australian coach, great rugby man, he got up and read the team uh, for the first test the following weekend, and that's where I first heard my name read in a in a Wallaby team. It was a pretty special moment.
2: That's
0: wonderful. Who would awesome. you call first when you made that wallaby side? Did you? Uh, mum and dad were there that night. Um, okay. So in those days, we'll, you also have to remember we're going back to the days where there was no mobile phones. So yeah, so I would have had yeah. to wait till I till I got home to uh, to call anyone. But mum and dad were in the at the function that night, so that that sort of took out that. And then and then others would have seen the the news on the. ABC probably at that stage, or or rugby yep. it might have been on. Um, what was it called? Uh, I can't even remember what it was called in those days. But the rugby show, which was at five
2: o'clock on a Sunday night, wonderful. How did you feel going into that game? Oh. Were you nervous, excited? Were you shitting bricks?
0: Yeah, I
2: think it's a bit of all of that.
0: And yeah, like if you think like when you're growing up, everyone in Australia we're very patriotic. Mm-hmm. And we've got the Olympics going on at the moment, and well, yeah, loving that. But w- when you're a kid growing up, you love watching a national team. It doesn't matter what yep. what sport it is. But for me, the sports were cricket and rugby. But but rugby, the the moment that captivated me more than anything else was was when the the team would s- stand there in front of the crowd with their jerseys on, sing the national anthem, yep. and pulling on that jersey for the first time. I wouldn't pull it on at training. I wouldn't pull it on for a photograph. I didn't pull it on until just before we were leaving the, the change rooms that evening
1: Wonderful. and running
0: out on the field. So pulling that jersey on, uh, standing in front of the crowd, singing the national anthem, you can imagine it was a very emotional time. Um, yeah. But I, I think, yeah, so there, were, there was this combination of the nerves but excitement. But for me, that was the moment that signified, wow, you're there. You, you, yeah. you, you are representing your country.
1: And did you start that match, buddy?
0: Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. In those days, basically, you played until you're injured. No one, there was no changes unless there were six reserves, but they didn't get a run unless you were injured and weren't able to physically carry on in the game.
2: Yeah, love that.
1: The nickname Nobody, can you give the listeners uh, the background behind where that came from?
0: Well, it actually came from the tour, a tour in 1996. We're over there. In the UK, with um, with the Wallabies, and and at the end of the tour, we used to have a just a lunch among the teammates, and everyone would have to buy someone else from the team a present. It was usually around November, December, so it'd be the Christmas present, the Chris Kringle, and and yeah, you, you weren't allowed to spend more than five or ten quid, yeah. and you had to have a go at someone, you know, in the in the process. And it was Mitch Hardy, who drew me. And um, he he bought me a Mr Men book, and the book was Mr Perfect, yeah, as a joke, obviously. Yeah. And um, Campo was in the team. It was his final tour, and he he said, oh, yeah, no, um, oh, sorry it was Mr, so it was yeah, Mr Mr Perfect, and he said, oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody's perfect, and he thought he was really funny, and he thought that that was you know a good yeah, a good name, and he said said it to someone <laughs> in the media, <laughs> yeah. and he Team called me that, but the reality is that no one ever called me that in the team environment. But once it got into the media, particularly in the British press, they thought that that's what my teammates call me, which was never true. (laughs) So that perpetuated this myth. And uh, there's probably worse nicknames, but uh, I don't ever like it. And the funny thing is, no nobody ever in the team ever called me anything like that.
2: So um, you got man of the match on your debut for the Wallabies in 1991, one of the best debuts in a Wallaby jersey. You've made it after all that hard work. Uh, was this quite a surreal moment? You know, you've made it man of the match. Yeah. Unbelievable.
0: Look, absolutely. Like, you never think you're going to make it to that level or play a game and then you your whole goal then, once you play one game, is to play two games. And... Uh, yeah, and then and then you don't want to be someone who's just played a few games. You want to have had a you know good long stint in that jersey. Uh, so, yeah, look, it, it, yeah, it's funny. You just always feel like you're racing. You never feel like you've you can stop and celebrate too much because you're worried. Am I going to be picked again next week? You know what's going to be the the, the process around this? And you you genuinely just want to get picked week in week out. And so for me it was it was then the, the joy of getting picked for a second test.
1: For sure. And when was the next test John It was the following
0: week against England. Okay. So Wales the first week no, then we played England. Then I think we played the All Blacks maybe the following week after that and then we head over to the we, we flew over to the World Cup <laughs> uh, at, at the end of that year. So it was pretty full on. We played 10 tests that year, I think it was.
1: Out of those four matches that you just mentioned, John, how did the team play?
0: We we beat the All Blacks in that first game. We had a really good win against England and then beat the All Blacks in Sydney. And then we lost 6-3 at Eden Park in Auckland. And uh, oh, it was a really close game, but it was probably, it was the only game we lost that year out of the yeah. 10 test mm-hmm. matches. But it was probably in the end, it was an important loss because it was, it was a, a loss that really reinforced to us that if we were going to go on and win the World Cup, there were some things that we had to be and some things we couldn't be, and and we were just a bit loose that day. We didn't, yeah. you know, we weren't as tight as we needed to be in our execution of just the basics of the game. And with 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 all sport, like you, you need to get the big things right, but to get the big things right, firstly you've got to get the little things right, and no matter how well you prepare the thing in sport is you've still got to get out there and do it no Absolutely. one's going to do it for yeah. you and there were probably yeah. just those couple of things that we didn't go out there and execute yeah
1: so leading in from those uh leading on from those um, tests rather um heading over to the world cup you made the final tell us about that tell us about the the, the grand final in the world cup yeah 91
0: incredibly exciting like it's definitely a pinch yourself moment in your career like you you know you can't um can't wait to you know to actually get on the field the whole week you were 21 john weren't you yeah i just turned 21 so i was pretty fortunate to my first year happened to be a world cup year and all of that yeah it's a bit of luck that goes with sporting careers and timing is is an element of that luck um so I think it was just this incredible uh, awe of the moment. And I remember running out onto the field and we're playing against England at Twickenham and we'll yeah, kick well. off and you're lining up. First, you meet the uh, first, you meet the Queen and then you you get ready to do the answers <laughs> and then you go to kick off. And I just remember being on the sideline getting ready to chase the kick and the whole English crowd is singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. chariot yeah. And you can imagine yeah. the, the emotions and the mood and I just remember at this very moment looking across and catching Nick Farr Jones's eye, and he was our halfback and captain, <laughs> and he just sees me and he just he just gave me this great smile, and and it was exactly what I needed at the moment. Like I was young, I was twenty-one. You are sort of looking around, your head's a little bit scattered, and you just get this great smile from the captain. Okay, he's cool. He's ready for this. I can. Uh, I should be a bit more relaxed as well. And then you just get into it and, and you play the game and you just go hard
2: what a moment like how, how was it playing in front of a crowd like that like honestly it would have been awesome
0: yeah look we're pretty lucky playing rugby around the world there's some great stadiums and some great crowds and they all have their own unique aspects to them but it's i'd much rather play in front of a crowd that was mostly booing you or mostly against you than in front of no crowd at all. I really feel for the the Olympians at the moment, the sports people around the world who are playing to empty stadiums, where uh, sport is about the transfer of energy and it's about the energy you can create and transfer out there on the field to build momentum or stop momentum. But I really believe it's also about the transfer of energy for you or against you from the crowd yeah. Uh, that you can take out there on the field and and the transfer of energy from the stadium to the to the lounge room at home, you do feel that and and that that relationship of a sports person with the crowd is a really important one, and it contributes a lot to performance. So when you have the privilege of playing in a World Cup final or any other big game in front of a packed stadium, it really does energize you and and I think bring out the best in most people.
1: Yeah, I just looked, uh, you had uh, 56,000 screaming poms that day and um, (laughs) it was a 12-6 scoreline. So, geez, it was a game of defence, right?
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, We scored the only try that game and it was when... um, Ewan McKenzie and Tony Daly dived over Daly, simultaneously yeah. to score the try. And it was yeah. certainly from a rolling mall. I think it was awarded to Tony Daly. Daly's it game. was,
1: yes, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah but it's... Yeah. Look, I mean, World Cup finals will probably be more defensive than they will be attacking. You know, it's yeah. a game that you yeah. desperately don't want to lose. So you'll <laughs> put everything on the line to defend your line. And and that was that was an important part of our tactics that day so
2: Beautiful. so moving on to 1999 world cup you thought you were going to be playing new zealand the french beat new zealand in the semi-final what were the squad's thoughts after that happened
0: yeah i remember really clearly we played south africa the the day before and uh, you know drove you know went back in the bus and we we're all preparing to play against new zealand in the final we thought they'll beat france and and then we'll be ready for it and then we got back and back to cardiff to the hotel we'd be staying out for the next week and went to the team room we we're watching the game and the all blacks were doing it quite easily uh up to half time and even looking strong straight after that i think they at one point they were leading by 14 points they ended up losing by 14 points wow. and we just Why couldn't on? believe what was happening uh it was an incredible performance from the french and the french can do that and i I remember sitting in the in the room and as we were sort of probably cheering on the French a little bit because we you know, we sort of felt the All Blacks had a pretty good team. We knew the French had a great team as well, but um, we probably thought the French may not be as difficult as the All Blacks. But then yeah. we were just stung with this realisation. And remember, it was Dave Wilson who said, look, guys, If they can do this to the All Blacks, they can do this to anyone. And the thing about the difference between playing against the All Blacks and playing against the French, we felt confident against the All Blacks because we really believed and through that period of time we had a really strong run against the All Blacks, but partially because we really understood how they were going to play the game. They were going to be good. They would execute things well, but we knew, we, we felt we knew what they would bring to the game. The difficulty with the French we hadn't played them as much we weren't as familiar with them as a result and and they always had this unknown quality to them and they could pull that on anyone at any time That's so good. in many respects it made the week a more nervous week
2: playing against the yeah. French
0: than the All Blacks
2: Did you do much study on the French before that game or you know We we, we
0: hadn't but we yeah, then right. did Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> The busiest people in our squad that Sunday evening, because we played on the Saturday, that Sunday evening were the the video analysts and the game analysers because they spent all night cutting up footage of the French, which then we had to... We watched on the Monday and we started to... The Monday, the week leading into a World Cup final is not going to be a heavy fitness week or anything like that, but it is a heavy mental week. And I think the first... monday morning we're still sore from the really tough game extra time against the Springboks, and they're always very physical and we i think we went to a basketball court or somewhere indoor and we pretty much just walked through some moves and some tactics that we had gone through that morning uh after all the analysis on the on the um on the on the sunday night from the video guys preparing some things that were played to us the next morning and we broke into groups and Looked at okay, what sort of defensive lineouts? What sort of lineout moves? And what sort of parts of the field? How are we going to play the scrum? What sort of tactics are we going to take into this game? And start to walk through those early in the week, so they were starting to get ingrained in our brains.
2: Wow, that's brilliant.
1: So yeah, you had a you had a big win, 35-12, fantastic. And just quickly, is that I'm looking at the team list here for me as uh, I'm an 80s baby, so this was, like, peak when I was, like, at a a really competitive age. Um, Is that the best Wallabies team that you played in, 1 to 15?
0: Yeah, look, really, really difficult to say. I mean, you look at the 91 team, that was pretty special. Um, The 99 team, I think if you go through it, what, what I love about that team is the team we had in no one made their debut for the Wallabies that ended up playing in that World Cup final. No yeah. one made their debut after 1997. So everyone who played in that final had been had been involved in some of the worst Wallaby performances of all time, like 96 in Wellington where we lost 43-6. Mm. Up until last year, it was still the biggest losing margin by a Wallaby team. 1997, we lost terribly to South Africa. In South Africa, we lost some other matches that we could should have won. And and then, the, but the people that went through those really hard times became this this great team that was one of the, the you know the better Wallaby teams of all time. And that's what probably makes me as proud as anything of that of that era. We turned something around that wasn't wasn't going well. And Rod McQueen had a lot to do with that. Yeah, his track record as as Wallaby coach was second to none. The way he approached it, the you know, the way he brought together a team off the field that would help um, make the team on the field so much better. The individual talents of those players were, were was one thing, and you know, I comes to my you know some people people come to mind like Tim Horan. I never played with a better rugby player than Tim Horan. Um, but Stephen Larkham's brilliance and his subtlety... Yes. Yes. You know George Gregan's determination. Yeah. that's pretty special backline and then you it is you know, someone like Daniel Herbert ran on in that game and he was he had that physical presence. he hurt his knee early in the game and Jason little came on pretty fair replacement. Joe Roth and Ben yeah. Chun like Ben Schoon was this incredible competitor and Joe Roth had these this wonderful set of skills and then Matt Burke at fullback Matt
2: that's Burke. a oh
0: pretty impressive backline. And then you look at the forwards and some of the names wouldn't necessarily go down in anyone, in a lot of people's list as the best in Australian rugby, but, gee, they were. Um, and for their time and, and if you look at what they were doing, some really underrated players in that in that team. And, you know, the front row who ran on in the, in the World Cup final that day was you know, Richard Harry, Michael Foley and Andrew Blades and David Giffen was my partner in the second row. A back row with um uh, Toto Kefu at number eight, yep. you know, hard skilled. David Wilson never got the recognition as an open side flanker. He came No, he
1: didn't, no. No.
0: He came after sort of Poydovan and Jeff Miller. He came before George Smith and Smith, um, yeah. and uh, Phil War. And we you know, then we have guys like Michael Hooper now, but Dave Wilson was as good as any of those guys. And then you had this hard figure in Matt Cobain, silent assassin on the side of the scrum. And he was just so good to play with, but so humble and um, quiet at the same time, but but bright, rugby bright.
1: How does it make you feel talking about it right now?
0: Look, it brings back some great memories. And I, I think sport is special because you have these moments where you're 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 involved with the team, and it doesn't matter if that team's a Wallaby team that wins a World Cup final, or the Brothers Colts Under 19 team that was the team I was in. Really, that was the team that lit the fire for me—the Brothers Colts Under 19s—and I I talk just as passionately about that team because we weren't the didn't have the best talent in in the competition, but we were the best team, and and that's mm-hmm. what excites you when you go back to it, and and that's the magic of sport. You don't have to be a Wallaby. You don't have to play for the Australian cricket team to get so much out of sport.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: There's so many gifts that it gives that it gives us. And uh, just that sense of team, com- camaraderie, people getting around each other to support each other is, is something pretty special.
2: So, Johnny, you've just won the World Cup against France. What was that night like afterwards? Um, did you get on the piss? Did you get carried away? Did you rip in? What did the boys get up to?
0: But what, what made it special is, is we had a lot of our, our family over there. My wife was there. Actually, all my brothers and sisters were over there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my brother and all my sisters, I should say. Mum and dad were there. And uh, it really was this wonderful opportunity where with people that really meant so much to you, your teammates, their, their families, their extended families... Really, that, that's what the night was about. And I think we ended up just back at the team hotel. Uh, we, anyway, we had a function and then anywhere you went out, outside was just too busy. Most of us probably ended up back at the team hotel just really enjoying the moment with the people that were really special, that were most special in your life at that, at that point in time.
1: John, you could have come back and walked straight into the Prime Minister job, honestly. You were the, <laughs> you were the most loved person at the time, the captain of the Wallabies. It was just like, yes, we did it. Yeah.
0: Look, it was a good era for Australian sport and there was a it lot was. of camaraderie yeah, it was. across sport at that time too. And I, I know that um, uh, Steve War is a, a good friend and yeah, we oh. exchanged notes you know, a lot oh, of the Steve time before. and, you know, chat, chat a lot through that period. Uh, you yeah, know, the, the Australian netball team won the, their World Cup that year. The cricket won. Cricket. Uh Davis Cup. They, they won the Davis Cup that year just after we did. And I think we had world surfing yeah. champions and we had the Olympics wow. in Australia the following year. There was yep. just so much going on. And everyone was feeding off each other's success as well, which, yes. which yes. is really important. Like so I hope we get that afterglow from this current Olympics.
1: I yeah, agree. Man. Yeah, it was like a cornucopia of feelings. Like it was just success after success. It was just like it just couldn't. We couldn't be stopped in any sport. We were just literally yeah. the best in the
2: world.
0: Yeah, it was a pretty special time.
2: Um, so talking about two thousand, um, when you kicked that conversion to win the Bledisloe Cup, what was the feeling like?
0: I think uh, relief number one. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, well, I know, when you have any of those big moments in sport, the first thing is yeah, you, your body just has this adrenaline coursing through you. So your your natural instinct is to be up. But as a kicker, you've got to bring it back down. And, uh, yeah, some sports you need that up the whole time. Other sports you need this, you need to sort of go through that wave of emotions. And I think it's one of the things with kicking, it's a skill, it's a closed skill that you want to be in control. So you can't be too hyped up so but you know it's a it's a it's a big moment um look i think through that period of time we had a lot of people in our team that stepped up at big moments and it might have been yeah. stephen larkham kicking a field goal in a world mm. cup semi-final you know sterling mortlock a couple of weeks later kicking a mm. um penalty much harder than mine from the sideline to to win the tri nations for the first yes. time for us yes uh Toto kefu getting over and scoring a try in the last minutes like everyone there was a lot of people who had that those moments and for me that day that was my chance to um to step up step up and and ha- and and do something that, that you should do it's a skill you practice and you you get used to it and and it's it's your
2: job at the time were you nervous it was a ballsy move <laughs> yeah. like
1: it was the end of the game, like it was to yeah. win the game. So <laughs> oh, you
2: yes. had the old,
1: the yeah. old cotton jersey was weighing you down, and your 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 the ball position. You're quite an upright kicker. So, were you how how at what stage in your um, playing career did you learn to kick? And were you always brilliant? And lead us into that final, like you're walking in to take the kick.
0: Yeah, look, I. I... I probably always kicked, like even from a very young age. But um, I, I, yeah, being a being a forward, you tend not to kick much when it gets to a higher level, and yeah. there's usually backs that can kick. And it was a bit of a disgrace that there wasn't a back who could kick in our team at that, stage. Like, the kicker that day. But he he had um, just left the field, so I was the second choice. So I knew it was my kick. Um, I think the most important thing when you're kicking is, is again, it's a close skill. So you need to have a set routine. And for me, as a as a forward and kicking, um, I and being the second choice kicker, the second string kicker, you tend to um, you need to know that you can be called up to kick at any point in time. And if you are, you need to be just ready to go. So for me, that was just being able to step into my zone, and uh, and say, okay you know, step into my routine. And we've often spoken about it, but there was, I used to say to myself three things. I'd line it up according to the wind or whatever and, um, and then just say to myself three things. First one was head down. And when I said head down, I'd pick a specific stitch on the ball.
2: Yeah.
0: Second one was slow. You can go too fast, but you're never going to go too slow in a moment like that. So head down slow. And the third one was follow through to the post. And if you did those three things, you'd get it most of the time. Um, so that was the that was the most important thing for me.
1: I do recall, like I've seen it so many times, but I remember your follow through, your your action, your leg would almost be up around your face. You just had such a a big follow through, and we got it, we got it over. So we're yeah. all there behind but you. But I couldn't
0: do it these days, that's for sure.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could. <laughs> so under your captaincy, the Wallabies became the world's number one rugby team. How did, how did this happen? How did you achieve this wonderful um, achievement?
0: Uh, with a lot of help from my friends, I can tell yes. you. Um, yeah. Look, the great, uh, I think great teams have a lot of great leaders, and, and one has a C next to his name. And with a great team, that it doesn't matter who's got the C next to their name. Rod yeah. McQueen, as I mentioned, was an outstanding coach. Um, he put good people around him to fill his deficiencies because we all have deficiencies um i worked really closely with rod had, had a great friendship didn't start off all that close we started off friends but you yeah, know we had to build a level of trust between each mm-hmm. other and uh and that 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 came together really well but i had a lot of other really strong leaders in the team and, and you can just go through that team i, I rattled through before yes, and yeah. whether it be george gregan or yeah Tim Horan or yeah different people for different things David Giffen would take on a lot of responsibility in calling defensive lineouts um yeah and that World Cup final Michael Foley in the you know in the scrum was the leader of the scrum you knew if he was you know leading the scrum that, that you know would be in good stead and uh you know made a big difference um,
1: so it's all about culture right it's a uh, those team sports it's it all comes down to team culture and everyone has to buy into it so
0: yeah, it's it's culture, it's leadership, it's those things that yeah, you know, they're words we use easily and at times flippantly, but they actually mean a lot. Mm, and, really and I think know. the beauty about them is is they only mean what you define them to mean, and what you define them to mean in certain teams at certain times. Yeah, you know, there's elements of the Wallaby culture that we hope is is this. I suppose you can refer to it. It probably has been referred to as a golden thread through the years of the Wallabies. Some things you want to be the same. You want it to mean exactly the same for someone pulling on the gold jersey this weekend in New Zealand, as it would for them to um, to uh, you know someone to do it in 19 you know 1950. You want it to mean exactly the same. Um, but then there's going to be other elements of a, of a team culture that will be developed by the, the, the team of the, the time. And for us in 99, that'll be slightly different to what it was to the guys in 2021. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, Johnny, um, just quickly, were all of you blokes like really good mates? Did you all enjoy beer together after the games and stay back and tell stories and all that talk about family and all that stuff?
0: Yeah, we we were. And obviously in a team like that, some will be better mates than others. Yeah, there's always yep. going to be people you gravitate more towards at the dinner table than than others. But there, there was no one that you didn't like. And most importantly, there was no one that you didn't respect. Yep. And you knew that if you asked any of those people to do something for the team, they'd do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, love that, mm. Johnny. Uh, who's the best player you've played with and against?
0: The best, the best player I played with was Tim Horan. Um, mm-hmm. He had this wonderful will to win. He had incredible skill set. A really decent, decent person as well. Really understood what it meant to be part of a team and and threw himself into that that, that team environment. I played against a lot of great players, and sometimes it's easier to, to select a team that was great to play against. Some yeah. more than individuals, yeah. but, but look, I'll call out a couple. um mm-hmm. Yeah, there'd be many people I could look at in the position I played, and whether it be through my time in Ian Jones or a Martin yeah. Johnson or a yeah. Mark Andrews or a Neil Francis from Ireland. Like, and, and I could go on. Yeah, but I'll, I'll pull out two individuals because. When you're playing against a team, sometimes you have to focus on an individual as well because they have that much influence on the team they're playing in. That's yeah. right. And probably no surprise. And look, sadly, they're both they both passed away, but one was Jonah Limu. Yes. Who oh yep. Never I was played say him. with Jonah in it without yeah. absolutely focusing on how do you contain this block? Yeah, you know, what mm. do you do? How are we going to play the game? And
2: and, and what how
0: are we going to do that and and to go with being an incredible player who was he was just a, a lovely human and a really gentle uh, and respectful guy and I, I got to know him a bit over the years and had some you know really meaningful exchanges with him. The other the other player it was a guy by the name of Eustace van der and Yust uh, was a South African halfback and captain at different stages and sadly he passed away. Jonah was 40 and Yust I think was. Forty-five when he died of motor neurone disease, and Jesus. you know an incredible competitor, like Tim Horan, a will to win, but just had this real X-factor about his yeah you know, how good he was as an individual within within a team. Teams that had you in them were better teams than than without
1: him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wow. um, going back to the days, like the early days um, in the early nineties. Um, did was it were you purely a rugby player, or you had your you studied at um uni and you're a site you, you finished psychology, I believe. So, were you working when you were playing rugby, or were you purely a rugby player? And like, was money wasn't really the big factor, was it? It was all about the love of the game back then.
0: Yeah, look, when I started, I, I did a Bachelor of Arts and did psychology within that. Um, mm. and when I started playing rugby, money wasn't a factor because there was no money in the game. It was an amateur sport. You weren't allowed to get paid to play. Um, You weren't even allowed if you spoke at a rugby function or if you uh, wrote a book, you weren't allowed to get money out of anything to do with your image and likeness of the game.
2: That changed
0: gradually. And in 1995, they declared rugby was a professional sport. So the first year of professionalism was 1996. So my career was cut in half by amateur and then professional. And... One wasn't better than the other; they were both great. Um, but I always worked through through playing in different ways, and for me, that was really important. Whether it was study or some sort of occupation on top of it, because I found that my friends outside of rugby it was it was really important to have friends and connections outside of rugby as much as it was in it, because it gave me that break from the game, and it always yeah. meant. And it was also important that that I had. Some intellectual stimulation outside of the game, rather than just all being about rugby all the time. And I found I was a better player, I was a better thinker about the game if I was thinking more broadly about other things as well. And most of the people that I played with were, you know, were in the same bracket.
2: Yeah. Um, so you were put in the Sports Australia Hall of Fame in 2003. 2007 inducted into the international rugby board hall of fame 2011 inducted into the wallaby hall of fame 27 inductee 2020 elevated to legend of australian sport in the sport australia hall of fame do you ever look back at your career and think jesus christ i've done i've achieved a hell of a lot you got a big smile <laughs> on your face. You yeah, a, I was, yeah. Like, yeah,
1: it's it's a bit awkward hearing all of that. Yeah, it is.
0: It's. Like, it's... I think the, the the thing about it is that you don't play ever hoping to be in yes. any of those halls of fame or or get those recognitions. You you play because you love it, and then those things happen. All of those things you've mentioned happened years after I finished playing, and so. Really, it's funny. Like to to go to, to to achieve a top level of sport, I think you need to be in a different state of consciousness. Um, yeah. In in some respects, and particularly when you're playing a you know a contact sport or or, a, or any sport at the highest level, because every sport has its you know its mental and its physical challenges. And when you're in the zone, bearing yourself in those challenges, you're in a difference. You're in a different mindset and. Yeah. And then when you move on, the day I, I always remember, the day I finished. A week later, I was watching a game of rugby. When watched a game of rugby, it was a game of club rugby, and you know, I, I wasn't playing. And I had my last game was a test match against the All Blacks. And when and watched this game, and I, I was watching the game, thinking, "Oh wow, how did I ever play this game? It's so bloody hard." Because immediately I finished, I stepped into a different state of consciousness, and and so you, you end up. I've always, I suppose tried to live in a world where you're looking um, you're living in the present for the future and you're not looking back. It's lovely to look back and enjoy those moments and celebrate with former teammates and whatnot. but but I certainly don't dwell on it. so a lot of those honors are dwelling more backwards rather than than looking forward. So it is wonderful to have the chance to accept them. It is very surreal real but it doesn't change sort of where you're at mentally in your life at that point in time.
1: So over COVID, I know you were talking about mental stimulation. Um, have you picked up any hobbies Or over the last last year's COVID? Did you, are you, are you a big reader or what are some new hobbies that you've picked up to, to keep your mind busy?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think we all have to do that. Yes. Um, I think for me, it's it is, it's, it's really just pivoted what I was doing a bit because a lot of the things I've been able to keep doing, but I tend to, um, I love reading. Uh, I love reading a lot of different genres, but but probably um, I'm more a non-fiction reader than I am a fiction reader. But I, but I have, I'm also, I love writing and like, I don't write publicly in anything at the moment, but when I'm trying to gather my thoughts when I want to reflect on something, I do a lot of writing. And uh, I've probably done a lot more of that through COVID um, in in different ways. And I I just find that very personally satisfying. And, um, you know, to build, you know, it it could be be nonfiction, could be fiction, but just to build narrative around different things that capture your attention.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I hope you box it all up and um, you finally choose to get it all out there one day.
2: Have you have well, you been throwing any balls to Elijah?
0: <laughs> uh, not so much. I think he needs someone who can throw a bit faster than me. Um, <laughs> he, uh, oh well, not
2: that Andy fast. Andy too. I think Andy he got, got Scotty, Scotty out
1: last year in first yeah, grade. He, he did. He got me out of <laughs> first grade last year. Really?
0: Yeah, he yeah, got he, me. He had a few injuries last year, but he's uh, he's he's pretty keen to get back there this year. Oh, I there think I was out Scotty. There that day, wasn't I? At, um, yeah, you were. Westfield.
2: I was, um, yeah. I saw you walking around with your your dog, and I was I was walking around with the boys, and I'm like, what the, What the fuck is that, Johnny? It was like, and then, <laughs> and then, yeah, he said, "G'day, nice nicest human being ever," you know. So, um, yeah, it was unreal. Seeing, there you go. Yeah. Elijah was injured. God's and country got
1: you out, mate.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> God's country. <laughs> so, God. I
0: love going to watch the um. Yeah, you know, the club sport I love watching sport at all levels, but I think there's something special about just sort of sitting sitting down watching yeah and some of the talent at those mm. you know in yeah you know, a grade sport around you know whatever the sport is yeah you know, there, there, there's something special about just sitting down quietly on your own just absorbing the contest and it's uh, yeah I love it.
1: Yeah we've, yeah, we've been talking about it um, recently. You could almost have like a few state teams for each code because there's that much talent going around mm. that's not, not making the team, so, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, so uh, we've, we've got a couple of viewer, viewer questions. Um, so I'll start off with Jared Brett um, wants to know, what's it like to face off to the Harker in front of thousands of people?
0: Yeah, the Harker is something very special. And I, I was, I've been part of teams that have faced it and not faced it. And, you yeah, know, in 96 at Wellington, when we had the biggest loss ever, I was in a team that didn't face the Harker. And I blame myself for that. I was a captain and learned. And, and subsequent, I really dove in to try to understand more about the Harker and what it, what it is and what it means. And some people talk about the Harker being this advantage at the start of the game. But the thing I've come to learn is, The only way the Harker is an advantage is if it's an advantage in connection because you've Mm. got this one guy connecting to the guy next to him and then connecting as a team, connecting with the fans around them, connecting as a country. And that is very special and that's hard to compete with. But the good news about it from the opposition's point of view is the All Blacks don't have a mortgage on connection. And so Mm. you've got to find your own way to connect. And some teams facing up to the Harker have found a different way to connect. And some might be walking towards them. It could be the French walking up in an arrowhead.
2: Yeah.
0: We, we really, after that time we thought about it more, but we we did just, you know, linked arm in, in arms. We watched it in, in our track suits and watched it and took it in and took took in the challenge of the competitors. And that I think that really helped us to understand a bit more about it, to take it in and then be prepared to take them on in the game after that.
1: So the next question is, do you see any future for the game of Rugby Union from a grassroots point of view or do you think AFL and Rugby League are taking over in that respect?
0: Well, rugby has always had the challenge of AFL and Rugby League. Its greatest advantage is it's an international sport yes. and um, and it's different and there's, there's a lot of people who play rugby that wouldn't be suited to those codes. There's a lot that are suited to those codes. so there there is a war for talent out there. Yeah. But I think rugby will always hold its place. Um, and it'll go through some ebb and flow of popularity. But with yeah. some there's some big opportunities ahead for us and for our game, yeah, it's an Olympic sport in the form of seven aside, but that that keeps rugby in the in the nation's conscience yeah. Uh, yeah. consciousness, if you like. Um, and and the other thing is that you know, we're bidding to host the the Rugby World Cup here in twenty twenty seven, and that hosting the Rugby World Cup is not just about the seven eight weeks that the tournament goes on, it's about the years that lead into that tournament. It's, it's a big driver, and also isn't it? the halo effect of hosting the the tournament or the Olympics or whatever it is in your backyard, and 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 so there's some real lights on the hill for our game to to make the most of. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Totally sure. agree. Uh, this one's from Nathan Moore. Um, he wants to know, and I think a lot of people share this sentiment, um, yeah. <laughs> why, why aren't you coaching the Wallabies? Yeah. And at the very least, we all think that you'd make a great specialist coach. Yeah.
0: Look, I think to be a coach, you've got to be buried in the game. And one of the things I found at the end of my career, I remember talking to Mark Lone. I mentioned him earlier. as one of the people mm-hmm. I really looked up to. He's a great player. Uh, Australian captain, ophthalmologist as well, so bright guy. Yeah. But I remember talking to him once about retirement. And he said, "You only retire after you exhaust your interest in playing the game." And and I never forgot that that comment. And so my judgment on when I was going to finish was when I had exhausted my interest in the, in playing the game. Right. And part of playing the game is preparing to play the game. And it's all the work you do off the field that give you the chance to be okay on the field and so for me i'd had enough of that and to be a coach you've got to dive deeper into that than any players ever had to dive into that and and that just wasn't it wasn't what turned me on uh, about the game i love the game love watching the game love thinking and contemplating on the game but that aspect of diving deep into Coming up with analysis and working out the tactics of how you're going to play a game. And that being essentially, if you're a coach, ninety-nine percent of yeah. your life, yeah, it wasn't me. Yeah.
1: But you do a fantastic job in the commentating. So yeah. Don't don't ever <laughs> leave that, mate.
2: <laughs> um, so this this will be our last question. Um, it's from Chris Riley. Um do you know if more kids are playing rugby in the 2020s than in the 1990s? There's there's a few questions here in one question. Um, and what does Johnny Eales really think about the admission of the force and rebels into our professional arms of rugby?
0: Yeah, look, it's, they're good questions. Um, I think I think if you looked at the raw statistics, and I don't have them on me, but more people are playing rugby now than 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 were playing in australia in the 90s um and it's also played professionally in more regions as well and and that leads to the second part of the question about the rebels and the force look i think it's been wonderful to have the you know these yeah the extra teams in super rugby it's been really tough and i was uh involved on the board of australian rugby when very very sadly and i've never been involved in a more difficult thing in rugby when the the force weren't included in the you know, in the ongoing frame of super rugby in the Australian competition. And and it has been great to watch them come back into it and come back into it with a lot of uh, strength and, and passion. Um, so look, the more teams we can have playing at a high level, and I think we saw with the Australian Super Rugby AU competition this year, there was a lot of passion and a lot of talent right across that competition. And that was, that was very welcome. And the more teams we can have competing, the better.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: Uh, just quickly, uh, sorry, I, I know that we said that was the last one. Just quickly, um, I wanted to just ask, do you still have your connection to the Morris Brothers Ashgrove, mate? Yeah, I do. I uh,
0: went we yeah. to yeah, it was, it was my school and uh, still helped them out with a few things. In fact, Matt Hayden and I were both ex-students. Matt, Matt was the... The year below me at school, and we've both taken on the role as patron of what's called the Champagne Trust. Does and he have special... a grandstand named after him? Sorry,
1: does he <laughs> have a grandstand named after him? Uh, he's got the scoreboard named oh, after okay, him. Okay, yeah. Uh, oh, that's yeah. So, <laughs> so you got the trust going.
0: Yeah, so there's a the trust, and that um, it raises money for for children that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford, uh, you know, a, a Marist education at at Ashgrove. Um, and yeah for some whose families might come into hardship while they're studying there um, others who just would never have had that opportunity so since the start in the first year of the foundation we had one student go through uh since then yeah. there's been 80 I think 82 students have had the opportunity to be educated at Ashgrove through the bursaries offered by the foundation and and that's over about 14 years so or well, maybe it's maybe it's it might be 16 years now. Sorry, that's um, wonderful yeah, that
2: you're giving back
1: awesome. that way. Yeah, I, I love good. that.
0: It's a wonderful thing. And It's what you look at. The Morris community is a really strong and generous community. We have a thousand people at the lunch every year, oh, and that's so good. it doesn't. They don't need to sell it. It just sells out itself, and that's you know, it gives brings a lot of joy to a lot of people.
1: That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. My son's going to go there because I'm just up the road, so I'll have Excellent. to. I'll, when I when you're there, I'll have to we'll have to have a bit. <laughs>
0: Look forward to that.
1: Well, unfortunately, that uh, calls curtains on the episode. Thank you so much, John, for coming on. Um, we really, really appreciate it, mate. On uh, on behalf of the official Big Stiff Podcast, Scotty and I would just like to give you a big thumbs up, and you're you've been an absolute trooper and a legend for us, mate. So thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks
0: guys. My pleasure.
1: You're alleged. Actually,
0: you'd be happy to know Elijah's just cooked dinner tonight. It was he's on he's <laughs> on duty in uh in the lockdown. So well, tonight, <laughs> we've, we've made the kids take some ownership of the meals and uh good and you so he's on tonight. I'm not sure what it is. I think it's noodles of some sort. So good areas, oh, mate. Yeah, good. Good areas. good areas. He's he's good actually area. pretty he's pretty tidy with his cooking, so it's good.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of the official Big Stiff podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Hey, um, Scotty, you there, mate?
2: Yeah, mate, I'm here. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Spotify, Apple Podcast. Just type in at the Big Stiff Podcast and you should find us there. Okay, thanks. Bye, guys.